Well, it's now 2024, and we are excited that you are here with us at Portrait Church, listening to our podcast. My name is Jay. I get the privilege of being the pastor here at Portrait Church. And here's what we think. The best thing we can do as we start 2024 is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are in a brand new series called Seek First, where we are exploring what is the kingdom of God? Why should we seek it first? How should we respond to it? And what is the type of people God wants us to become in his kingdom? So we pray that as you start your 2024 year, that you would find value in seeking first God's kingdom and everything else will be added to you. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit us online at portrait.church or you can find us on social media. We'll be meeting at the Mitten Building here in Redlands on Sundays. And we hope you enjoy this message. And we honestly hope one day we'll see you in person as well. Take care. So it was May 2nd, 1844. We were gifted with the person, person by the name of Elijah McCoy. He was born in Ontario, Canada. He was the son of fugitive slaves. And so his parents had um, traveled the underground railroads. They went up north, found themselves in Ontario, Canada. And this freedom was that, that eventually allowed Elijah to be born and he was born such a brilliant young man that his family started to recognize that, wow, he's not like anybody else in the family. He's really intelligent to a certain degree that we cannot fathom. And so now with this new found freedom, they began to allow him to get into educational spaces. He was so brilliant that he would get an apprenticeship um, where he would become a certified mechanical engineer. He would move back to the U.S. in Michigan, and he would look for a role as an engineer at the Michigan Central Railroad. But due to the, uh, the, the racial climate of the day, he wasn't able to get an engineering job that he deserved, so he took a lesser job as an oil man. And this was during a time where the locomotive industry um, was starting to boom, but the problem was with oil. You see, the thing was, they would have to, back then, a train would move a little bit, and then they'd have to go put oil all over the tracks, and then the train would be able to go a little bit longer, a few miles, but then they would have to repeat the same thing over and over. So Elijah McCoy, he comes along, and the engineer mind that he has, he begins to look at this problem, and he creates something known as McCoy's Lubricating Cups. These were these metal cups fixed atop of every wheel, and slowly it would begin to drip oil along the traveling lines. See, save productivity like no other. You didn't have to stop every few miles, have to get off and then pour more oil. He innovated, and it revolutionized the industry. Productivity was saved and profits soared. You couldn't go anywhere in America without seeing locomotives that were equipped with McCoy's lubricating cups. But the problem was the problem of counterfeits. Because like many of you know, when something catches on, someone has to try and find a way to create something similar, but it always doesn't fully match the description and the original design. There were people around the U.S. that popped up claiming to be McCoy's lubricating cups. 
It became a huge problem across the world, so much so that when people would go to buy these cups, they would ask, hey, are these the counterfeits or are these the real McCoys? I think you already know where I'm going with this for some of you. But the enemy has sowed plenty of counterfeits in the world and in the kingdom of God. And I think people are looking at followers of Jesus and saying, yo, are you the real thing? Are you the real McCoy? Or are you just a counterfeit? Are you a counterfeit? Because here's the problem. We live in a world where it's very easy to identify as being a Christian. Christian and disciple are no longer synonyms. No longer. You can be a Christian without being a disciple of Jesus. And a disciple of Jesus, what we call is an apprentice. It is someone who learns from the master. I love this quote where John Mark Comer says, we have made it possible to become a Christian without becoming a disciple of Jesus. And many of you know, especially in California and in places of the West, when you hear the word Christian, it has so many other connotations with it now. In John Mark Comer's book, he mentions this study um, where he says there's about a lot of stats and independent surveys say about 68% of Americans still identify as Christian. Check that out. It's like majority, almost 70, still identify as Christian. But then these independent studies, they dig deeper and there's a lot of variance here, but what they're coming to conclude is that out of the 68%, only 4% actually are following Jesus actually practicing his way. Being a disciple is someone who says, oh, I am going to be a student. I am going to be a learner. I am going to be an apprentice of my master. So when we talk about seeking first the kingdom, we're not talking about just throwing a Christian title on something. We're talking about how are we going to organize our life around pursuing what the king wants. Dallas Willard, famous theologian and author, says the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs uh, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians, end quote, will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. He's saying the problem in our day and age, is that we can't really distinguish who's following Jesus or who's just claiming a title. And, and it's getting at the heart of this. And it's creating a tension that we honestly need to sit in. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad that you get to sit in on this conversation. Because if we do say we follow Jesus, we actually need to begin to ask ourselves, can people actually distinguish us from everyone else? And most of you have been trained in this religion of up, maybe this religious upbringing that your mind automatically goes to all the things that you do. Well, I don't, or you don't do. Well, I don't do this and I don't do that. So yes, that distinguishes me. But can I tell you, that's not the heart of the matter here. Because what Jesus is about to describe in this parable, he's describing something where it's actually hard to distinguish between wheat 
in the weeds at first. At first. So Jesus, a couple weeks ago, we talked about, he described the kingdom coming as this mustard seed, the smallest seed known uh, to the people at that time. can, Can barely even see it. But that's how the kingdom comes. And he says that the seed is, is the word of the gospel. It's the good news that God has sent Jesus to rescue all of humanity from sin and the rebellion against him. He has sent Jesus because all of us in here have a natural bent. It's in every single one of us. I don't care how cool you think you are. Like it says all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so every single one of us in here has a natural, it's just natural. It's in you bent to seek your own kingdom, to seek your own empire, to build your own thing at the expense. And some of you will even just throw the cherry of God on top and say, well, I'm doing this all for God but you ain't consulted him one bit along the way. And so the tension here is that the seed of the word of of the gospel, the kingdom coming, is coming during a time where there is still evil existing in the world. Listen to what he says here. Jesus is describing this parable here. And the thing that Jesus is so good at is he's speaking people. We have to make sure that when we read these parables, we don't take things out of context because not every little element is meant for us today, but there's principles that we can take. And so he's speaking to a context, a community who understands all about this agricultural metaphor. And the reason they understand it is because they live in uh, where there's wealthy landowners who control most of the rural land throughout the Roman Empire. Many of Jesus's audience would have known what he was talking about in this parable. You see, ancient farmers would feud and Roman law would forbid the practice of sowing poisonous plants, weeds in neighbor's fields. So check this out. Back then, if you had beef with somebody, sorry, beef means if you had a level of argument or disunity with someone, um, yo, you could just go ahead and poison their field. Like, Nowadays, it, you got to be careful with people all up in your comment section. These people all up in your crops. <laughs> so it's a different game. It's like you sleeping and oh boy across the street didn't like the flag you put on your house. And so he's going to come and he's going to start throwing poisonous seed all over. This is what Jesus, Jesus knows that these people understand the, this metaphor, the story here. Someone liked it, okay? So... It's so significant because in that day and time, bread was like foundational, foundational to the, to their, to their food system. It was like everything that was used back then. So obviously if bread is foundational, so is wheat because you need wheat in order to make this bread. So he knew about, these people knew about these poisonous weeds known as tares and the thing with tares is in its early stages, they would appear to be wheat. The only way you could distinguish the wheat from the tear, the weed, was when it's what they say its ear would appear. And so with this backdrop, Jesus gives us a response to this parable. So if you, if you notice, we're, we have been in Matthew 13 for most uh, of this series. And I find it interesting that the disciples, those who were Jesus's apprentices following him, not every parable story that he would say, they'd be like, yo, can you explain that? But I always found it interesting that the ones that caused a lot of tension, what you mean throwing into a furnace? Hold on. We, we got to go talk about this one. 
So, so now Jesus leaves the crowd and he's with his disciples and it says that his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the, the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some of you, this is your first time coming to church in a while, and I apologize if this is the text that we ended up with today, but just journey with us. I promise God is still good all the time. It says in verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So Jesus breaks it down. He's like, yo, I am the one who sows the good seed. That's me. The field, this is the world. Good seeds are those who are in the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And you know who the evil one is? He says, it's the devil. And the end of the age of what he's talking about is this final day of judgment. And what he's doing and, 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 and what he's creating in this moment, he's describing the kingdom of God. And it's not like this one-off event because the kingdom of God has both, has both come and it will come. And there's tension in between as we wait for this final day of judgment. But here's what I want us to sit in the reality of is that we can trust Jesus in the tension of the kingdom being both here and now because he says he's the only one who sows good seeds. Everything, even from the beginning of time, Jesus says, I created this and it was good. I did this and it was good. Notice that Jesus never says he did anything bad because he doesn't know it. He doesn't know bad. He doesn't know evil. He says that I created it. It was good. And he says, you know who's the producer of all things bad? It's Satan. It's the devil. And so again, we sit, we could sit in the tension of this moment because I think often many of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are like the servants in this parable. Because what do the servants do? They say, hey, Jesus, I thought, I thought you sowed the good seed. All of a sudden, where'd all this bad seed come from? And Jesus is like, oh, that's the evil one. He's like, hey, you, they're like, hey, you want us to go pull it up? We go, we go handle it right now, trying to fix the situation. And he's like, no, don't pull it up. Listen, he, said, he says, don't pull it up. We're going to sit here because there's going to come a harvest. And at the harvest, I am going to make the judgment. I'm going to use my angels, but it's going to be my decision. One theologian, uh, France, he says, Jesus announced God's kingdom, and this would lead many hearers to expect a catalysmic disruption of society, an immediate and absolute division between the sons of light and darkness. It was to this impatience that the parable was primarily directed. You see, the kingdom of God exhibits a, an uncomfortable level of patience. Just an uncomfortable level of patience that you got to have not only with God, but with people. Maybe you're not like a green thumb, because I sure am not. But maybe you've asked the questions, well, if the kingdom is here, then why is there still bad seed in the world? 
if God is so good, why does evil still exist? I think all of us wrestle with that question. I mean, this week, um, if you followed us on Instagram, like I woke up and I'm over here trying to go and just be with God. I was about to wear, I just, that just sounded more spiritual. But like, I was about to go on my day and I show up to my driveway and I'm like, oh, why are, why are all our small group books on the ground? Why is my window busted out? Oh, they didn't try to get me. Someone broke into my car. They tried to take it. Look at God. It wasn't worth taking, I guess. That's the joy of not having a great car. You know what I'm saying? It's like they get in. And it's like, ooh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think we'll pass on this one. Let's go, let's go find a Tesla. We don't need a Hyundai. <laughs> hey, it, Hondas, man, they ain't going to steal it. They ain't going to steal it. But I sat in the tension even this week of someone who would have the audacity to try and um, disrupt the peace of my family, disrupt our thing, just, just break in. You ain't, I, I don't think I've offended anyone that bad. And, and if you're the one who broke in this morning, I would love to treat you to lunch. And, and I got a bill waiting for you. But at the end of the day, that's such like a, that's such a, uh, that's such a flippant, like it's like, it's a first world problem. But at the end of the day, Many of us in this room have experienced the tension of how can God be good when this bad thing has happened? How can God be good when here's the diagnosis? How can God be good and I lost this person? How can God be good and this happened to my kid? How can God be good fill in the blank? Every single one of us here, I guarantee at some point in time, or will in time, in the future time, ha- have, that, have that question. How can God be good if this? And honestly, I think a lot of times it's complex. I think too often Christians are so easy to say things like, well, God's going to work it out for your good. Here, here, let me throw you this scripture. But we got to be able to sit in the tension with people knowing that the kingdom is not fully yet realized. And people are suffering and they don't, need your, they don't need your Bible verse right there. They need your presence. They need your love. We love the Bible. Don't, don't hear me. We love scripture. We believe that's a directing thing. But we have to be people who are distinguish ourselves and sit in the tension with people. And we got we to gotta understand that, that God doesn't produce evil. That's what sin did. And we must be careful as followers of Jesus, if you call yourself that, not to want to uproot weeds too soon. In our context, as I began to study this week, it made me realize how many followers of Jesus in our time tried to uproot weeds just because they're, they're, they, they experience a little bit of discomfort. Now, here's what I, want to make a, what I want to make a statement on. There's a difference between trying to escape destruction versus trying to avoid discomfort. And I believe some of you in here have probably experienced a lot of church hurt because your pastor or your spiritual leaders told you to stay with that man that was beating you because you were married. Can I just tell you, there's a difference between staying with something that is destructive and evil versus staying with someone who just brings you discomfort because you don't like the way that they uh, do their sheets or pick up their towels or you don't like their mother-in-law, whatever the case may be. That's not my experience. Don't be putting me out in the streets. But here's the difference is we have grown, like our world in this digital age has become so like, so soft to things that make us uh, uncomfortable. 
And so what, we, what it looks like is, well, I'm just, I could be honest with you here. I'm, I'm talking through experience of what I've noticed in our day and age. Well, I'll just move away from all those types of people and I'll just go into this place. I'll move here where everybody look like me, act like me, talk like me, vote like me. It's too, it's too uncomfortable to be here. Oh, how often have you seen that? People are not forming communities that are distinguishable in the name of Jesus. They're just following a tribe and a lane and a side. And so what, he, what, what, what we have to understand here, again, is I'm not saying that we need to sit in the tension because I think in the tension, God can build character, but I do think that there are things that you shouldn't sit in that are destroying you. So I want to be very clear because so often, especially as pastors and leaders in the church, our role should be to create frameworks and accountability around the people of God flourishing, not protecting our power. That's the goal. And so we have to understand that there is bad seeds that exist in the world that we still sit in the tension of because there's a type of character that God is trying to produce in you. God is putting people in your life. I've said this before. He's putting people in your life who are not a barrier to your peace, but a bridge to your sanctification. People are in your life. They're not a barrier to you being comfortable, but they're there because they're a bridge to you becoming more like Jesus. Because Jesus entered messes. Jesus allowed prostitutes to sit at his feet. Jesus allowed the lepers and those people to be in his presence. And he was coming for the kingdom to share it with them. But if we just run from these uncomfortable environments and people and, and we just build our little silos of eco chambers, the kingdom doesn't permeate those, permeate those places because we're too busy trying to pursue comfort. The darker the world gets, the lighter the light has the ability to shine. And so the only comfort you and I have in the kingdom is the comforter himself. Although many of us want to seek control over our environments and circumstances, we have to be careful to understand that the kingdom is wanting to come in places that have not come because people's hearts are hardened. So my encouragement is not for us to be discouraged by the weeds of the world, but just to know the king knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Notice, he's like, how did those seeds get there? He's like, oh, I know who did that. Yeah, that was, that was your boy, the devil. Yeah, he was chilling with me for a minute, but no more. He decided his own kingdom. He decided his own way. He's not, he's not anxious about these bad weeds in there. He's like, oh, no, no, there's going to come a time. There's going to come a time. And listen to what he says. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything. Everything that causes sin and all who do evil. He says, I'm not tripping because I'm just waiting for the harvest time. Don't pull it up too early. Wait, wait for the fruit of this to be exposed. Wait for the ear to be exposed. You see, the reason why we can have faith and trust in this, and honestly, I grew up in Christian circles that really use this picture of hell as like this, uh, man, like, honestly, my relationship with God was more like fire insurance policy than actual relationship with him. If I'm being honest with you, if I'm being honest, like that for many of my life, it was like that. Because I didn't really sit in the reality that, oh no, 
Like the God who is going to judge is a just judge. He is perfect judge. It says that righteousness and justice are his throne. That means he thinks righteously, always good about how he judges. We don't live in a world that does that. We live in a world of corrupt judges. We live in a world of people who are more, uh, I would say, moved by money or status that, oh, you could buy somebody off nowadays. You can't buy Jesus off. You can't. He is just. He is righteous. And he's centered on one thing, and that is king, it's his kingdom. And we need to understand, it says, judgment is coming for everything that causes sin and all who do evil. In many translations and in original texts, it's, it's a word that's translated lawlessness. Lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4 says this, everyone who makes a practice, everybody say that word with me, practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So here's the thing. Uh, one of the values at, at our church here is we say, man, we want to be a community of, that, that's pursuing practice, not perfection. And what we mean by that is we understand that many of us here are practicing things. We're either practicing godly things or we're practicing ungodly things. The difference between someone who is lawless is someone who blatantly makes a decision to practice evil. There is no sense of, I am going to, uh, the Bible uses a term called repent, which means I'm not going to pursue my way. I'm going to pursue God's way. The person who practices lawlessness doesn't, doesn't see it that way. They just see their way. And they, if they're not careful, if they're not careful, it says that there is going to become, there's going to come a day of judgment for that. But, but I really want to direct most of this message at those who call themselves Christians, because he also says in Matthew 24, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Check this. Lawlessness leads to lack of love. Many people perform the Christian life, but they lack the love that is exuded by staying close to Jesus. More knowledge of Jesus doesn't mean you live out more love like Jesus. You have to make a practice of not just wanting the life that Jesus offers, but living out the lifestyle that Jesus says. That's the whole reason why he came down to earth, because he says, I want to model something to you as my apprentices on how to live. And I, and I know you're not going to do it perfectly, but I need you to practice my way, my kingdom. And then he says in Matthew 23, we don't have this scripture because you've heard me say it before if you've been around us. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. And the scribes and Pharisees, these were the religious elites of the day. He says, man, you got whitewashed tombs. Jesus was a G. This is like a battle rap scene. He's like, you got whitewashed tombs. And he's probably, I don't know, maybe it's just, I read the Bible a little more hood sometimes, so. Sorry, huh, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. I thought about it. I didn't know how to describe that one. But he's talking to the Pharisees, religious leaders. He's like, you're hypocrites. Oh, on the outward, you look real beautiful. But within, you are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you are also outward. So outwardly, you appear righteous 
to others, but guess what? Inside, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So I think those of us who call yourself a follower of Jesus, like I think you should not be as so concerned with other people's weeds that you make sure you're not a weed yourself. That you should actually make sure, and look, does my life actually reflect kingdom values? That, I, that I'm following the king himself. Judgmental Christians should not be a thing. Judgmental followers of Jesus should not be a thing. And that's one of the problems today. We have so many judgmental Christians who go around trying to pull up weeds, and that's not your job. That's not your job to pull up the weeds. Yes, we are to have a critical eye, but not a critical spirit. While Christians are called to make certain judgment, we are never called to be judgmental. There's a difference here. Even, even when we make judgments, they are to be rooted in love. Because I love you so much that you are made in God's image. I want to dignify you. But I love you too much to have you stay there. To have you stay pursuing a kingdom and world that is not aligned with the king that we follow. This is where Jesus is famous and often uh, uh, misused and abused words come in in Matthew 7 where it says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. What Jesus is talking about when he's talking about this judgment, he is really speaking about condemning someone, making a final judgment on someone's life. Oh yeah, you're going to hell. You cannot make that judgment. You do not know what God is going to do in that person's life. How, I mean, think about if you read a story of Jesus uh, up on the cross, like my man that was next to him, I'm sure people made a judgment about his life. And in that very dying last moment, Jesus is like, hey, bro, you can come with me. I got paradise. I got paradise. But the problem with Christians is that we get so self-righteous, so arrogant that we just built, I mean, there's, there's YouTube ministries and all these, these people all over the world making content and building platforms off of judging people. And we eat it. Christians eat this stuff up all the time. And I think we just have failed to discern that if it's not rooted in love, we are, we are making condemning statements on people's life when God says, in my kingdom, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So why would we be people who condemn when the very God that we serve says there's no condemnation for you? And so sadly, many people leave the church because they feel condemned. They feel like Christians make a final judgment over their lives. And I think, I think the tension here is that as followers of Jesus, we have to have the patience to want to see people's lives transformed. We can't be like the servants who are going in saying, let's get these weeds out of here. No, no, no. Do you have the patience to see someone's life and see that, you know what, right now they kind of look like a weed, but through the work of God's spirit, they actually could be a weed. It's not your judgment call to make that final decision. It is our job to pursue the kingdom, pursue the way of Jesus, and along that way, we tell people that this is the greatest path that you can ever take. And 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, yo, why am I judging outsiders? 
It is those in the church who am I to judge? It's not our job to judge non-Christians, people who have not, who have not made a commitment to follow Jesus. It's not our job to judge them. If anything, it's our job as those who call ourselves followers of Jesus to commit to a community and to keep each other accountable. That includes me included. This isn't a space where we're gonna, we're gonna build walls of protection around those in power. It is those who have leadership here who should be laying their lives down for those who are part of the community. That's the Jesus model. He did not come from his throne. He came as a suffering servant. He did not come from his throne as some conquering king to bring the kingdom. He came as a suffering servant. And so I wanna point you to the antidote to not become judgmental. And that antidote is humility. It's humility to trust that when you seek first the kingdom, there are gonna be things that you have to endure. There's gonna be patience that needs to be produced. And there's gonna be rules that you don't follow perfectly, but you know the one who is perfect, so you follow him. And when spiritual arrogance will lead you to puff up yourself and try to be bigger than others, be careful because it is the humble that God says he lifts up with high regard. And it's the arrogant who he actually humbles. It says that at the harvest time, you'll be able to tell the wheat from the weeds because the wheat will rise up higher than the weeds. So when you pursue humility, Jesus elevates you. But if you try and do it yourself, he humbles you. And in the words of the famous theologian from Compton, Kendrick Lamar, sit down and be humble. Sit down, be humble. You are not on the throne, he is. At the end of the day, it's the humble who won't see hell. It's the humble who say, I am not gonna pursue my way. I'm gonna put my faith and trust and commit to Jesus. Commit to the work of what he's done on the cross. If you put your faith and trust in him, you choose humility, you are the one that gets eternal life with him. You are the one that's gonna be shining bright for the kingdom. At the end of the day, we will be judged by who we are rather than the front we put forward. We are gonna be defined by the seed that has been implanted in us and that seed is supposed to bear fruit tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold because the kingdom of God has infiltrated your heart and you make it your priority and goal to seek first his. Humility is a magnet for the Holy Spirit. And if you think what distinguishes you is your performance, you're wrong. If you think what distinguishes you is how much you know about the Bible, you're wrong. If you think that what distinguishes you is the work you do for God, you're wrong. It's humbly seeking the kingdom, practicing the way of Jesus, surrendering your ambitions, your desires to his ways and his throne. Because the gospel is this, that Jesus would come down to serve during a time where other religious leaders would limit their contact with those who were impure or the outcasts or the marginalized. And Jesus was the perfect wheat who took on the power of sin and death. He would be burned in the furnace, taking all judgment, but oh, he is so good that he would come out that furnace. This ain't no Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look, this is a whole different kind of burning. He was cut off from life from his father. And he would do that so that you and I would have access to life 
to be declared free, not from what we've done, but from what he has finished. So that on that day of judgment, when those of you that have put your faith in Jesus, he's gonna look at you and he's not gonna see your lawlessness. He's gonna see his son. The beautiful exchange, the things that we've messed up and done for the perfect life of Jesus. And so those of you in here who say you're following Jesus, I just wanna ask you to beware that your gospel and your life is not a counterfeit one. That when people look at you, they say, wow, that's the, that's the real McCoy. And so Heavenly Father, this morning I pray that putting our faith in you is not some sort of practice of fire insurance, but it's a practice of seeking first your kingdom, surrendering to your ways because you're better. And even though we live in a world with wheat and weeds, God, we pray that as scripture says, that we would pay close attention to our life, that we would seek to see where are the weeds in our life. But would we know that it was not our good works or our righteousness that makes us wheat, but it is putting our faith and trust and surrendering to you. And so this morning, I pray that we would all examine our hearts. We would examine things that we've said to people. If we need to apologize to people, would we do that? No matter how uncomfortable it may be. But I pray that we live in the tension of the discomfort of the kingdom coming and also being here. And so Father, examine our hearts. And for those that have not put their faith and trust in you, Jesus, I pray that they would see the type of king that you are would see the type of ruler that you are and that everything about you is nothing but good. Speak to people's hearts this morning. Would we have good soil? In Jesus' name, amen.